Hi, this is Kathleen Mercury with another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries today. I am especially excited to introduce today's guest, Stone Lebrande, who I met at the Tabletop Network Game Designers Conference in Utah. Um, he sat in my presentation on teaching game design to my students, and then I was able to participate in his session, which he did, um, which is based on a game workshop session that he's run at the Game Designers Conference. He has a wide variety of experiences in the video game world, but also now in the tabletop world. And Stone, I'm so excited that you're here on the show with me today. All right. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So why don't you um, give everybody a little bit of an idea of your background and um, your work within the game industry? Yeah, I started in the game industry in the early 2000s, working at Blizzard on the game Diablo 3. And from there, I moved over to EA, where I worked on the game Spore, and then was the lead designer on the game SimCity. Um, and now currently, I'm working at Riot Games as a lead designer, and we're working on some really fun secret projects. Mm-hmm. And you also are the designer of Mechs versus Minions, which is just you know blown up in the last few years and is an amazing game, has phenomenal production quality if people haven't seen it. But the one thing I have to tell you is when I saw that you were a designer on SimCity, I can't tell you how many cities I have failed utterly in that game. I would get them to a certain point, and they just never seem to thrive. Like, whatever you can do wrong, <laughs> I think, right. in that game, I just could not ever get it to be good. And so, that's, uh, it was so, like, but I never, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, at some point, I stopped. But the thing was, is like, even for something that, it, you know, gave me so much frustration, it was such an interesting project, I would imagine, for you to work on in terms of the design, in terms of having all these sorts of moving, interlocking pieces, yeah, it was a pretty incredible project uh, from a systems design point of view. You, know, you have hospitals, you have schools, you have pollution and sewage and wealth disparity and all sorts of things. I mean, one of the things that you were talking about is like it's hard to get the city um, to really thrive. Mm-hmm. And part of that is the pushback that we put on the player. Because if we made it so that you could win the game, then you would just stop playing. Right? Right. It's like, oh, I beat the game, so I need to move on. But in the real world, cities tend to have problems as they get bigger and bigger. That's where the worst problems start to happen. So what I found with the players of SimCity, depending on their goals, their city successful because we don't give you the goals. So if you say, I want to make a million people, that's going to be really hard. But if you say, I just want this small little community out in the foothills here with a nice lake, and then you say, it's a perfect success. Everything's thriving. Uh, but people tend to want to just keep packing more and more stuff into their mm-hmm. city uh, because it generates more money for them and all of that. And so that's when things start to fall apart. Right. Uh, but that was also, hey, we wanted to kind of model a real city experience. And that's what happened to the real world too. No, I think that's right. And it's funny though, because I actually had one city and I think it was something that was like one that my cousin had started and I took over and I was playing it and I got a spontaneous parade. So I guess that is pretty successful. So it was kind of funny, like they threw a spontaneous parade for me and I was like, oh, that's cool. Well, the funny thing is at the time, my sister's husband, he had created the world's uh, most difficult terrain possible. And by the end, it was perfectly flat, perfectly symmetrical. I mean, (laughs) he's no longer my sister's husband. Maybe this part of the thinking behind this game is why. But the thing was, is when I got the spontaneous parade, that just broke something in him. And he was up until like three, four in the morning, every single morning trying to like, and finally, like he got one, you know, have his own just to show you that he was better than you. Well, just because it's like, after all that work he'd done, and where's my parade, (laughs) you know? So, uh, well, thank you for hours and hours of frustration. So I appreciate that. Um, I think, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) 
So let's talk a little bit. Um, so you've all these video game design experiences. Um, and then there's so many different topics for us to hit on. But t- talk a little bit about Mech versus Minions and the development of that, because I think that's going to, you know, segue into a couple different areas that we're going to talk about today. Okay. Yeah, so I started making a game for my kids, and I make a game for my kids every Christmas, and I have ever since they're about two years old, and they're in their 20s now, so uh, that's a lot of games over a lot of years. Um, but Mechs vs. Minions was one I made when they were around teenagers, and the original idea for that game, it was called Weapons of Zombie Destruction, WZD, mm-hmm. and you had a bunch of zombies, and then the players controlled robots that tried to kill the most zombies. Um, and very much the mechanics are very much similar to uh, Mechs versus Minions with the programming cards. Mm-hmm. Um, and my goal there that year was my kids at being teenage boys were just into video games constantly. That's all they want to do is play video games. And they had asked that Christmas for the game Tony Hawk Pro Skater. And my challenge as a game designer was like, could I make a board game that when they open it up as a present under the tree, that they would rather play that game than play the Tony Hawk game, which I also got them for Christmas. Hmm. And so this was kind of my test. It's like, okay, am I a good enough designer that I could rather have them play my board game than play this really hot new video game? Um, So I kind of just cheated in a way. I said, like, I'm just going to go full throttle. I'm going to just, like, get a hundred zombies. I'm going to throw them in a box. I'm going to get these really cool mech figures, put them in a box. And when they open the box, it's going to be filled with zombies and robots. How could a kid not want to play that? Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it worked. Like, they opened it up. They're like, what is this? We got to, like, get this out. We got to play it. Um, so that was kind of the inspiration or the origin of, of the game. And... Um, most of the games I give the kids at Christmas, they're not really play tested thoroughly because they're like gifts and they're secret. And so we actually end up developing the rules as a family kind of after Christmas, after we start playing the game and get a few iterations in. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, kind of jumping forward a few years, I started at Riot. Um, I was showing them some of the games I made for my kids and we started playing Weapons of Zombie Destruction. And uh, one of the producers there, uh, Thomas Vu, he said, hey, we should turn this into a real game. This is like really fun. The whole world should see this. And I was kind of surprised because Riot's a video game company. It's like, mm-hmm. what are we doing making board games? Um, but he convinced enough people and they actually spun up a little team, um, got a great outside designer um, to come in and really help polish a lot of the campaign. And then the whole team just kind of formed from there and finally got the thing out the door. And just couldn't be happier. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, and like you said, I mean, it's got, you know, super high rating on BoardGameGeek. If people haven't seen it, the components, everything about it are absolutely spectacular. You know, it's got a high price point, but really, if you were, it's, you know, sort of distributed just directly by Riot. So if it was something that you were going to get from another game company, the price tag would be two, if not three times higher. So it's really a fun, but it's just, it's a great game too. You know, it's just really fun to play. My nieces and nephews, when they come to town, they always want to play it. It's got amazing table presence. Um, So yeah, I can only imagine, um, you know, seeing the fruition, especially when you work in the digital world, you know, you turn the computer off, it's there, but it's just, is there a difference seeing the tangible aspect of your games versus the digital versions? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why I make the games for my kids every year Mm -hmm. um, and just work on a lot of my own personal board game projects because I sit in front of a computer, you know, eight hours a day or more. And when I come home and I still want to make games, oddly enough, even though I make games all day long because I just love doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, But the type of games that I make are very personal. Um, Usually I can do all the work myself, so I don't need a huge team. Um, I 
don't really have the same deadlines and budget constraints that I would at work. So uh, it's just kind of liberating and joyful and getting an X-Acto knife and getting some glue and just really like cutting out the pieces. Um, I actually have access to laser cutters and 3D printers and things like that. So uh, my game's been becoming more and more sophisticated over time as I, I use some of these different uh, machining technologies. Well, that's so fun. Well, so one of the things, and this is a, a resource that people should definitely check out, um, on your website, Stonetronics dot com you list um a number of your talks that you've given at gdc and one is about uh, 15 games in 15 years and this is about the games that you've designed for your kids um so let's talk about that especially you know for our listeners who are probably interested in you know just a game design teaching game design but also too is you know creating classroom experiences for their students that you know are game based you know you you talk about these different lessons learned can you talk about some of the main ones that you sort of discovered over the years that i think um our listeners could find relevant um, I mean, there's so many because I've done so many years worth mm-hmm. of this stuff. And I would say the main overall lesson is that people change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing the kids grow up, you know, like I said, starting when they were two years old, the kind of games that they're going to play when they're two are completely different than they're going to play when they're 18. And the growth that they went through and just where their brains were at and their development process about like dexterity and mental challenges mm-hmm. and uh, more immersive parts, like whether they just want, you know, robots and zombies. Um, so having gone through that whole thing, I think has really made me a much, much better designer because it's forced me to think outside of myself constantly. So like mm-hmm. every year, it's not about what do I think would be cool, although I do think robots and zombies are cool. Um, I would think, what do the kids, or you know, what are they going to want this year? Uh, what's going to be great for them? And as you know, teaching kids, like they're the best critics in the world. They'll mm-hmm. tell you that something sucks in one second and yeah. they might not even say it in words. They'll just get up and leave and go do something else, right? <laughs> they're not, they don't care. It's like, <clears throat> so... It really puts a, a honesty bar on the mm-hmm. work that you're creating. Um, but what I found, again, kind of another general lesson overall, is that the the game doesn't need to be done per se. Like it's we're not shipping these things, so mm-hmm. who really cares? I don't have a publisher. I don't have these deadlines. So all that really needs to happen is that every time you sit down with it, you just engage everybody around the table. And if that means changing some rules around, and that means doing something different or adding a new piece to the game, then you just do it because mm-hmm. it's not like we're in a tournament or any, you know, there's no official rules or referee watching us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that flexibility and that openness in gaming, to me, it's really the core of why humans even play in the first place, why they play games. Right. Um, and a lot of that sometimes get lost when you play a computer game and the computer's enforcing the rules, or if you cheat, you get kicked off the system. Um, we can just be very flexible with all the stuff that we do. And I Mm -hmm. think that's another kind of broad lesson over that's kind of common across all the games. Well, and that's a good question, I I think, or just a question that pops up as far as, you know, for you as a professional game designer um, and thinking about your audience, but also as a parent um, and thinking about, you know, games as far as, you know, from not just an entertainment aspect, but also as far as like, you know, helping develop, you know, their, you know, social, emotional growth, you know, just, you know, learning how to play and take turns and win nice, play nice, lose nice, that sort of thing. Um, what do you think, you know, like, how does that play into what you do at work? Or does it, do you, um, how, I'm trying to think how I best want to phrase it. Well, let's just start there. So when you, when you're thinking okay. about 
you know, games and designs for your audience, you know, for like the social aspects, you know, what, how does that inform the process that you go about? So at, at work, especially like EA or a big company, um, it's going to have testing facilities and you're going to have like insights groups who help you gather data about market mm-hmm. size and audiences and you know, figure out the best ad campaigns. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. Most of it's around money, right? Mm-hmm. Like right. the company is trying to generate as much money as possible. Um, and so they want to hit the right target audience and they really want to know who to who to target for all their advertising spends and things like that. Um, so a lot of times as a designer or even a development team, we have to kind of step out of who we are and get this empathy for our players mm-hmm. and really try to understand like what do the players want. And in some ways this can get harder and harder as you get older because if your players of your game, let's say are you know teenage boys, most of the people in your company are not teenage boys. Like right. they're gonna be, they're gonna have families, they're gonna be college graduates, they all have jobs because you know, they're they're working right now, and so you can start to lose touch with what it was in that audience, and what they're really looking for. Um, I think um, the Roblox game is a great example of that, where from an adult's point of view or from a gamer's point of view, even you look at it and you're like, why would any kid want to spend a lot of time in here? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when you look at it from the kid's point of view, especially like uh, 10 to 12 year olds, it's just, it's more of a social hub. It's a mm-hmm. place to get together and have like these experiences that you couldn't have in the real world. So trying to understand it through the eyes of the audience is probably one of the biggest things um, when you're working at a really big company uh, to really target in on that um, intended audience and make sure that you're delivering what they want. Mm-hmm. And what do you think, how do you think your kids have benefited from the games you've designed for them and with them, the games you've played with them? How do you think your kids have benefited from that? Um, well, the, the straight answer to that is they're awesome at games. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they beat me at games all the time. Um, my sons are like, and video games are always at the top of the leaderboards. Uh, they're very competitive. They're they love to win. Um, so I think that's mostly good because um, it has that you know they're they're both very um, you know essentially top students at school. You know A students and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how much I can put on the games that we played because my wife also does a great job of, of educating them and keeping them in line. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, um, the skills that they have, so my older son is an engineer and um, works at Uber on the databases, which is a really like crazy amount of intelligence needed, I guess, to, oh, yeah. to do that. Sure. Um, and then my younger son is a musician and is really into like, writing his own music and kind of went off in this creative endeavor. And he's recently started writing some music for some smaller like indie game companies. Hmm. Um, so he's kind of in that um, video game space in a way, mm-hmm. um, but in a different aspect of it. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, let's talk about teaching game design because you do that too. Um, and what I really love too, especially um, for one of the links you sent me, is all about the games that you um, teach in order to teach game design. And I think, especially for myself, when I first started teaching games, you know, it was students did a lot of writing because I was very new. I was figuring out as I went on, um, you know, I wasn't, I was just, you know, basically like, hey, let's make games and what do we need to do? And all that didn't work out very well, or that was kind of boring, you know, so it was like this sort of like fumbling process to find what would work. And so as time goes on, has gone on, you know, what I do with my students is getting more towards that, but certainly not 
where I would want it to be perfectly, you know, as far as, you know, having the kids do it. So let's talk about, you know, how you developed your classes in terms of and how, you know, the games that you use to teach games to, to your students. Okay. Yeah. I started teaching at a smaller college here in the Bay Area, uh, Cogswell College, in around 2001. And at the time, there wasn't really a lot of information. There wasn't many game programs in schools in 2001. Mm-hmm. And so there was a couple textbooks and things like that, but nothing that really made it easy for me to set up the class. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just kind of invented my own thing and just cobbled together a bunch of of different things. And most of the workshops, and you probably know this as an exercise of like, here's a box full of stuff, make a game out of it. That's so (laughs) infuriating to me, because I I don't think that's fair, honestly, because there's so many different avenues, and it's so overwhelming. And it's, it's frustrating, and you don't feel successful. You know, what I do with my students is I have them make a race game. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I make a race game, because then you know, they know the objectives and they know the victory conditions. And so how the race is won of them playing around with different ways to play the game is really what I want them to focus on. But like I said, but that that same frustration, because I've been to workshops like that too, where it's like, this is great, go make a game. And it's just, you don't know where to start. Yeah, you want the constraints. And that's what I realized after that first semester that I taught um, there was a lot of information there and I would give a lecture and then say, now make a game based on the stuff I talked about. Mm-hmm. But they often didn't. They would just kind of like get off on some other tangent or they'd find a cool miniature of an archer or something. And suddenly they're like changed the whole game around based on this archer's arrows and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I started doing was kind of looking at each lecture, say a lecture about goals, and then say... I'm going to design my own game that the students are going to play. I'm not going to ask them just to make any game up in the world. I'm going to design a very specific game that's just about goals. And I'm going to give them a few levers that they can pull, uh, but they can only change the goal. They can't Mm -hmm. change anything else about the game. Uh, So, for instance, in that exercise, we um, just it's basically like kind of flicking poker chips around and trying to hit them into each other. So Mm -hmm. you can teach the game in one minute. Uh, But then we say, let's change the goal. So what if the goal is to get 50 points first? Let's play that. What if the goal is to get the most points in five minutes? Let's play that. What if the goal is to get the most points in one minute? Um, And so we just keep adding or changing the end condition of the game and different goals in the game. And after each loop through that, we pause and I said, how do you feel now? How did that game make you feel? How do you that compare to other uh, goals that we had? And so for instance, if it's just a points, uh, the most points first, it can be very slow and strategic and people take a lot of time and uh, it's more serious and thoughtful. But if it's whoever gets the most points in one minute, it's just frantic. You're just like, just you don't even care. You're just hitting the chips around like crazy. And so your adrenaline gets up, you start sweating, mm-hmm. um, you can't sit down. So there's a lot more like energy, but it also kind of burns you out after a while. So we're like, the game hasn't changed. The rules are the same. The mechanics are the same. Everything's changed. Everything's the same, except we changed that one end condition, you know, made it time-based instead of score-based. Um, and there was very powerful impact on the players themselves, the mm-hmm. emotions of those players. So that kind of gets into, hey, I'm a game designer. How do I want my players to feel? Do I want them to be energetic? Do I want them to be thoughtful? I have that power because I, I control the goal and I control the end condition of my game. So therefore, I can kind of control the emotions of my players. So mm-hmm. how do I want them to feel? And a lot of our, a lot of the exercises, a lot of the teaching of the class is, again, player first. It's like, think about your player. 
then kind of go backwards and figure out what systems make the player behave or experience the things you want them to feel. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because, you know, I'm thinking now <laughs> as far as like for that particular thing when we talk about victory conditions and um, and uh, and actually objectives too, you know, we, we sort of talk about it before we get into when they, you know, we really f- I focus more on theme and mechanics when they um, go into making their first prototype because like they just need to get things on the table and the objectives basically the goals um end up being the most flexible the most malleable it's the thing that it's the variable that changes the most so i don't necessarily have them you know play around with too many different ideas at the start we kind of wait till they do like a first play test of their game and then we start talking about goals but when i talk about goals i literally talk about goals like kind of run through a list okay you could do this you could do this you could do this like so for, for me specifically you know i mean this is really helpful in terms of, you know, I'm just like thinking, thinking, thinking about how I can incorporate this into my, uh, into what I do with my students, because I I mean, and I think it's, it's a no brainer to say that when your students are doing something as opposed to just, you know, sitting there listening about it, it's just, it's abstracted when they're just listening to a lecture. And if you manage to keep their attention, whereas if they're hands on and they're so fully and fully engaged in the game, well, then obviously they're going to have a much better experience. Like you said. Yeah, and it sounds like you've already done you know most of the work, which is if you have a list of goals, then you're already partway there. The thing would do is make a game for each one of those goals mm-hmm. and have the students actually play it um, and then talk about the goal. So instead of like, here's a list of 10 things, and then in 10 minutes you go over the 10 things, it's like, here's a list of 10 things. Today we're going to talk about number one, and we're going to play it in experience and, and make sure we all understand it. And then mm-hmm. tomorrow we're going to talk about number two um, and so on. And splitting it up that way and actually getting that hands-on, I find it's like super important because, mm-hmm. like you said, the lecture, the theory, sure, it's all like good stuff, but especially the younger the kids get, the less relevant. It's not going to mean anything to them because they just don't have the experience of having played all of that stuff. So the example that I use that exemplifies this is uh, the game Alhambra, which is a great game, classic game, Um, you know, collecting money, building out your palace. And the thing is, is the kids just think it's really dry and boring. So any lessons as far as the game from that perspective goes in terms of like, you know, how the money cards tie into the building tiles and looking at the array of building tiles and all of that. It just, it's kind of lost on them because they weren't, they didn't really care about the game. So they're like, yeah, okay. I mean, not necessarily categorically across the board, but generally speaking, the more engaged they are in a game, then the more that they think it's great that they want to play it over and over again. And I think this is what you're talking about when it comes to like knowing the age level that you work with, you know, I mean, the game coup, I would have kids at board game club want to want to play that game every single week, mm-hmm. every single week, because it was a game where they could very quickly just kind of get in- invested in, and then it would be over and they could quickly play it again. And that just really appealed to them, as opposed to, you know, sitting down playing something that's, you know, longer, more drawn out. Yeah. Yeah, the matching that audience, again, I think is probably the most important yeah. skill a game designer could have. Well, so that's another question. Think about your audience. So when you teach game design, um, you teach tabletop game design um, to people who are wanting to work within the video game industry for the most part, correct? Yes, that's true. Yeah. So do you ever find, like, do they ever have some sort of disconnect with what they're doing in tabletop game design as it relates to what they're going to do in video game design? You know, like, is there any... Um, like, how do they respond to that as a class when it's not sitting in front of a computer? 
Yeah, so I mean, they know that's the very first sentence that I say, like, welcome to class. You won't need a computer in this class. And then I explain why, which is basically this is an intro to game design class. Mm-hmm. I'm going to teach you about game design. I'm not going to teach you about computer game design. And computer game design is a subset of all of game design. Mm-hmm. And so the class takes a much broader look at things because we don't just want to say, let's only study computer games because then you're looking at the history of games from you know, 1950, 1960 mm-hmm. um, on, where if we say, we're going to look at all games ever since, you know, before humans were even writing the rules down, what are those games? Mm-hmm. And we kind of do exercises where we go around the room and start talking about like, what's the oldest game that you can imagine that people were playing? And, you know, eventually gets down to probably tag, you know, race to touch that tree, throw the rock and try to hit the squirrel. Um, so different games of those sorts, they, no one ever needed to write the rules down. Um, they were just passed on and on and on and on and iterated and it evolved and changed and uh, went from one tribe or community to another. So for me, that's really much more core to what a game is than our current system of, oh, it's a product that's manufactured by a publisher and distributed to a store and consumed as a form of entertainment. Um, and then, you know, with then you have to throw it away or buy a new thing um, to keep that entertainment, that novelty factor high. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in the past, like, you know, games like, say chess and go and some of these more ancient games they were probably played for hundreds if not thousands of years without a need for variation Mm -hmm. Um, just because the community that says your kid you learn it and the adults show it to you and then you teach it to other kids so i think that's just phenomenal and so for the class that i teach when i explain kind of what i just said uh, if the kids don't get it at that point then it's like i just want to make computer games then it's like okay well you know this class is not for you but just the opposite most of them are like they, their eyes are open to the possibilities. Mm-hmm. And if I understand all of that, then think how good my computer games are going to be if computer games are just a subset of this much broader arc of human history. Mm-hmm. Do you have students who end up going more into tabletop game design as well or in addition to what they're doing? Um, I'd say the majority of them I never hear from again, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always like one or two from every class who... I will like work with or see in the future um, at game developer conferences, things like that. I'm currently on my team. One of my students is, is working with me right now. Oh, that's cool. Um, and I didn't hire him. He was already on the team when I joined. And so it's like, oh, hey, I remember you, Angelo. <laughs> so, um, so that does happen. There's a few of them now, especially with Kickstarter, that have been able to get their games out and through the whole Kickstarter process. And I think that's really amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of those people, that's just their side project. It's just something they're kind of doing for fun. Um, so most of them, you know, when I ask them, it's like, who wants to make board games for a living? Pretty much nobody will raise their hand. <laughs> Because the only reason they're in the school taking that class right. is because they want to be uh, computer game developers in the future. Right. And it, well, but they and do have an appreciation impossible. of that. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. I interrupted. Go ahead. Well, I was just saying, but they do have an appreciation of, hey, I think I'll be a better mm-hmm. computer game designer when I'm done with this class. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, too, because making a li- living from tabletop game design is nearly impossible. And the designer is the one who you know, makes the least amount of money in the whole process. So you have to have a lot of games coming out with a pretty wide distribution in order to, um, in order to, to do that full time professionally. And it's funny, because um, I mean, I teach middle school, and most of the people that I work with are, 
you know, oblivious to this whole world of games. And so, you know, and they've heard little bits and pieces about what I do. They're like, oh, are you going to stop teaching and do game design professionally? It's like, well, considering like last year, I think the sum total of money I made for, you know, as an advance for one game was, I think, $1,500. And the amount I've spent going to mm. conventions and everything like that, like easily eclipses that. So no, <laughs> not anytime soon, unless I have a really nice van that I want to live in by a river, I guess. But um, yeah, and, and that's why with me and making the games for the kids, like I just don't set that goal for myself mm-hmm. of trying to make any money at all. Like it's only going to be an expenditure and the value is going to be the play, mm-hmm. which y- y- how do you measure that? Right. Um, and so, you know, if you're at a big company, you measure units sold and that's the sign of success. If you don't care about the money, then you just measure laughs, you know, you measure camaraderie, you know, you measure these other like social aspects that aren't very easy to put hard value on. But nevertheless, at the end of the night, everybody's like smiling and had a good time. It's like, how much is that worth? It's like, okay, that's great. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that experience uh, that we all had. Um, so it really is just a framing of why people make games. And again, it kind of goes back into what I said about in the past. Like games weren't about making money. Games were about just sharing and culture um, and passing on oral traditions. Um, and to me, that's much more what I'd rather work on. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I have to pay the bills, but I have a job doing a game design, so that works as well. Right. Well, and that's one thing I think um, that's a really good point because we because um, we'll, we'll we'll touch on measurement, especially as you know, maybe get into some a little bit on assessment. But the hardest part for my students, and this was the direction my talk went to at the Tabletop Network uh, conference, because it was called um, "Unexpected Lessons." from designing with kids. And the presentation I gave was different than what I had originally come with because I presented on the second day and a number of people talked about things I was going to talk about. But the big sticking point for me was, you know, I teach kids. And while the process is the same, we don't get into anywhere near the technical aspects that other people do. And, you know, I was really like a lot of the first day thinking, what can I bring to this discussion that's meaningful and valuable, that's, you know, unique to, more unique to me than probably anybody else here. And the one thing is for me is ultimately, you know, when I teach game design, I teach failure. I teach my students what failure is. And I don't like the term failure. We say setbacks, but you know how that goes. But honestly, you know, a lot of my students, they're gifted. They do very well at school. And none of them have really ever had to struggle because, you know, they're 12, 13 years old. And so when I give them this project and they really struggle to get through it, you know, for many of them, it's really, really hard to see success in the project, you know, from the start you know I mean like they they like doing it they like but they're always really worried about their grade and I tell them and I show them like assessment wise like I'm not going to sucker punch you and be like oh well your game's not fun and this mechanic doesn't work you know I'm looking for growth I'm looking for development but that's I think a really important part to emphasize and that's why I need to shift I think I'm going to redo my final assessment because I do you know focus on some of the more you know you know, aspects of like the rules, are they clear? Are they consistent? And honestly, they're not really ever. I mean, they, they make progress. But that's one thing is how to get to see success in a project where it's not done, it's not finished, it may not be good. How do I get my students to see that? You know, how can I get them more uniformly across that goal line of being happy with what they've done? 
Yeah, because it's more of a matter of, is it better than the last time? Mm-hmm. And it's not that it, it's ever finished. I have games that are like over 10 years old that we still break them out and like, you know what, this would be better if I change this rule around. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just part of the natural iteration of game, you know, the loop that you have to go through. So, you know, trying to get the kids to understand that um, the playtesting aspect and the feedback aspects and the iteration and the change, that's what the game design is all about. It's not necessarily about the end goal, mm-hmm. um, especially like for me with a six months um, class a semester. Um, actually, I guess it's more about like four months total. Um, there's not enough time to do that, mm-hmm. like just period. Like oh, yeah. You can't make an awesome game in that short amount of time, especially if you're a novice who's never made a game before. Mm-hmm. Um, so we much more focus on uh, just the growth. And as long as you're a little bit better than the last time or you've learned something new, then you're moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So what do you, how do you assess what you're doing with your students? Um, so it's a college-level class, so I don't have uh, as a lot of like the standards and things mm-hmm. like that that um, more of a public school might have to have. Uh, we're basically it's a grading it's a letter grade system um and i've tried to make it as fair as possible uh, because games can also be incredibly subjective right of like yeah, i just don't like that theme so right. i but your game was mechanically sound you know things like that so uh, i basically divided up into the majority of the class is just that you showed up because it's a workshop class mm-hmm. and so a big chunk of your grade like 65 percent is just whether you attended um, if you're there, you get the points, and if you weren't, you don't get the points. And so that's really simple to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't go – like if somebody misses a class, there's no way that they can re-get the information because how do you – oh, I'm going to bring the whole class in so you can all like play games together again mm-hmm. just because you were late that one day or missed that one day. Um, so they're just – that's I'm really clear up front that attendance is the main thing. Um, but then after that, there's a chunk of the um, grade that's about – um, their final project, which is the game they had to make. And they have to do it all by themselves too because I found that when they work in teams, there's always that question of like, who really did the work here? You know, somebody gets stuck doing more than they should have right. and one person you know, doesn't, doesn't live up to their obligations. But at the end result, you can't tell. So I just said basically like, you have to make your own game. Uh, you're completely responsible for the rule book, the, the atmosphere, the analysis that has to be done. And then I'll just grade on each of those things. Mm-hmm. So um, the rule book, which is like the ease of use of the rule book, how well it's organized, if they have good grammar, that's like 5% of the grade. Mm-hmm. Um, the graphic design, which is just what colors do they use? How was the theme expressed? How easy was it to work the user interface? Like if they have paper money and it's all blowing all around or they have really nice metal coins, things like that. Mm-hmm. That's another 5%. Um, then they have to turn in an analysis of the game. Basically, it's... Um, postmortem of the experience that they had mm-hmm. like where did you start how did you change along the way and that's just kind of a written essay almost a history of what they went through and why they'd made the changes they made and what they thought would happen why it worked or didn't work and in some ways that's kind of the most important for them mm-hmm. um, because that's a self-reflection and it gets back to the journey aspect that i was talking about like this is a process and notice how you how you have grown along the way um, as your game has developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last the last 10% chunk of the grading is what I call fun. And this is my very um, subjective grading on all of this, which is just like, did I have fun? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
a lot of it gets into would I want to play that game again? Were people laughing or were they on their phones? Um, were um, you know, was the theme really coming through strongly as we played the game? Mm-hmm. And you could just kind of get a vibe from the people around the table of, yeah, this just worked. And so even if it's a game that personally I might not like, like I would never buy that game or right. play it with my family, um, the group clearly got into it and was all having a really good time. And so that'll score higher as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I tried to be as objective as I could, but ultimately it's a game and there are going to be some subjective elements oh, yeah. that I'm going to have to come across. Well, and that's the thing that I find is there's a real disconnect with, honestly, with my final assessment and what I do. And the nice thing for me this semester is I'm actually not teaching any seventh grade, um, just to the schedule to make it work. I'm only doing eighth grade this semester. Next semester is all seventh grade. And I like this because... It's giving me sort of a break to think about it, what I do, what I can make better. And one, I need to change my final assessment because I do have the kids or I have had the kids do a self-reflection at the end. But that was like one thing that was sort of tacked on with all the rest. But I feel like the sort of more concrete reflection or the like assessment grading that I've done, I can actually kind of probably back away from that a bit because I think it causes them more stress than what I think is, you know, I don't think it matches the goals of what I'm trying to accomplish with them. Um, And so um, thinking about that, but the other thing though, too, is I'm going to have 80 to 90 kids next semester, which means 80 to 90 different board game projects. So I am toying around with the idea of letting them work with a partner. And so I asked kids last semester, I said, okay, if you have the choice between working on your own, or working with a terrible partner, which would you choose? They're like terrible partner. I said, yeah, everybody wants the great partner. But sometimes you get the terrible partner. And it was interesting because one of my students, who's one of my you know most intelligent students, brightest students, um, and he, he said terrible partner. And I said, really? I said, is it because you think you know, if they mess up, you know, you're just going to take it over and just do it. He said, well, that's part of it. But really, it's still somebody else to like bounce ideas off of and to work with and everything. And I thought that's a really good point. So I'm playing around with that. Um, Because usually kids always want to work with a partner at the beginning. But when I asked kids at the end of the semester, almost all said they would rather work on their own knowing what they knew about the game process and all that. So it's a Um, yeah, I mean, there's lessons in having working with partners too right Right. as far as the school system goes it's like hey that's the real world you're probably not going to have the luxury of just working by yourself every all the time Mm -hmm. and learning team dynamics and learning how to navigate those conflicts is actually like really important learnings Mm -hmm. but yeah i understand yeah (laughs) it could be a little challenging right but i'm still i'm going to get let them have that choice um because i think some will see that some won't i think it'll be a whole different sort of challenges for me but on the other hand you know uh, i'm kind of ready to mix it up and just to see what happens so um, so we'll go from there. The other thing I'm playing around with is having them do their games as print and play because at the end of the semester, I have them post a picture and a description of their games on Board Game Geek and people ask questions. But if I do print and play where people actually have the rule books and they have the games that they could actually, you know, play them, then it might, um, it's, you know, not just from sharing an idea out there, but actually putting their game out there and having other people maybe even giving them the chance to experience it. So, um, yeah, I mean, as you start to go that route which i think is great um but it's skills that aren't necessarily game design mm-hmm. skills they're very valuable skills like layout and editing and you know presentation right. and stuff like that that may not have anything to do with the game well that would uh, be design part yeah but that's only if they would have a partner because then they could conceivably have a little bit more time with the shared resources you know put that together that's kind of yeah that's that's the one thing that i'm you know maybe a little 
you know, a little too optimistic about, you know. But on the other hand, man, these kids, are, they come up. I mean, my <laughs> graphic design is, you know, Google drawing and, uh, you know, Google Docs. Mm-hmm. I do some amazing things with tables. <laughs> but... But they, they, I don't know. We'll see. Like, so it'll be a fun little experience. Um, well, I say fun little experience. It'll probably be super stressful, but um, okay. but it's so much well, fun. Well, I was going to say, I love the, in your talk how you talked about that they have to even make the Board Game Geek page, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was just incredible. Like, made me feel like, oh, yeah, I should probably do that to my students, too, because that extra push of of the real world mm-hmm. now knows about the whole you, world knows about your game, potentially, right. um, I think just adds some extra educational value oh, to yeah. it's not just this little thing that's in this one classroom mm-hmm. um, you're going to get feedback from random people all around the world now and yeah. that kind of opens up their minds to yeah. the potential oh it's i mean it's it's the it was one of the, the better ideas that i've had because it goes from yeah being school work my school project to a real thing that's out there you know and i talk with the kids because especially when they're in middle school and they get obsessed with numbers and you know different things and like iq score sometimes i kind of i try to squash that as quickly as possible because there is no number stamped on your brain it's how well you did on a test and maybe the next day you would have done some well or you would have done better but no so when my students put their workout on pgg yeah it just it's transformative honestly and what i want them to see is um of what i always talk about with them is genius isn't a number it's your ability to put new truth out in the world nobody cares you know what you know albert einstein's iq score was maybe people you know maybe took a test at one point you know what i mean all that we remember is what you do not you know if you're gifted or not not anything else and so the and that's the thing that i try to you know convey with them is you know the world doesn't care whether you're in a gifted program. The world only cares what you do. And can you produce interesting quality work that adds value to people's lives, that serves something of value, that makes people, you know, you know, have fun, you know, like in the world of games. Um, and so at the end of the day, like, that's what I hope they take from it. And then I say, if you never design a game again, what are all the things you learn from this that you could apply to other things? And they're good. And they come up with lots of different things. So that's, yeah, that's good. great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. This was so great. I'm so thrilled that you um, agreed to be on the show. Um, if Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, the, your class is, was really inspirational, uh, the talk that you gave about your class, um, and I really got a lot out of that. So thank you for hosting that. Well, that's super meaningful. No, I mean, I've worked really hard and, you know, to try to, I'm always, you know, it's like what you're saying, designing for the user and really wanting it to be something of value. And I really, you know, just respect you so much and the wide range of experience experiences that you have and so for you to say that means a lot so i really appreciate that okay great yeah i'm glad to share that's one of the things i want to be as open about all of this stuff as possible and like on my website just basically everything's free just take whatever you want modify it to how it fits your needs Mm -hmm. and just go from that yeah we share that philosophy so just um just as a reminder stonetronics is where you can find all of stone lebronde's resources um you can go to kathleenmercury.com all of my game design resources are all there for free and i say the exact same thing take them use them modify them do them better than me and um the more you know, amazing games and game designers we have, um, the more fun we get to play and life is hard enough as it is. So let's have some fun while we're doing it. All right. My philosophy too. Thank you. (laughs) Yay. Well, that's so cool. Thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. How can people get in contact with you or find out more about what you do? Um, The best place would be like through my website. Mm -hmm. Uh, My email is up there at stone at stonetronics with an X.com. And um, I'll send you some links and you can put them up on your website if you would like. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That'd be great. Well, thanks again. Um, This was super exciting. Are you planning on going to the Tabletop Network Conference next year? 
I hope so. We'll see. Uh, it burned out a lot of people to have to climb up that mountain. But <laughs> <laughs> they did. I did hear. I talked to Tim that they're going to move it to. It was up at Snowbird in Utah, and so uh, some people were definitely affected by the elevation. Um, but they are having it at a lower elevation next year. They did not okay. realize it would be such right. an issue for so many people. <laughs> but I guess when they're living in Utah in the mountains all day long, I guess they didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, had a great time anyway. So hopefully I'll see you there next year. Excellent. Well, hopefully our paths will cross many a time. Well, thank you so much, Stone, for being on the show. And uh, on show notes, we'll have lots of resources for people to learn more. So thanks so much. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. You can find out more about Inverse Genius and the people who create the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast by visiting us at inversegenius.com where we have other great shows such as On Board Games, On RPGs, On Minis Games, and The Room Escape Divas. If you would like to be on the show or have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us at schoolsandlibraries at gmail.com and let us know. We do have our episodes booked out for several weeks in advance, so if you have something time-sensitive, you will want to contact us as early as possible. 